0: Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper.
1: And I'm Mary Mate. How's it going, everybody? Thanks for joining us. A reminder we are at UsefulIdiotsPodcast.com, and that's where you can go to support the show and get bonus content, including this week's extended interview with our guest, Craig McKibber, who is a former UN official who recently resigned in protest of the Israeli genocide in Gaza.
0: Yeah. So you get to hear our extended interview. And of course, you get to have access to our Thursday throwdown, which is your midweek dose of media madness where we try to laugh instead of cry at media clips. There's always tons of material. And again, that's at usefulidiotspodcast.com. All righty. Should we go on to the four basic food groups? Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird? Isn't that terrible?
1: Let's do it. For Democrats suck, let's turn to Ukraine, which is in some limbo right now as Biden tries to secure. An additional 60 billion dollars from Congress to prolong the war. I think he wants to prolong the war until after he is up for re-election, but it's not going so well as Republicans are making a series of hardline demands, and accordingly, Biden is changing his tune. So here's the headline from CNN: Biden says U.S. will support Ukraine as long as we can, in apparent shift from previous language. That's right, because Biden's mantra up until this point was not as long as we can, but as long as it takes. Here, for example, is Biden back in December 2022.
2: Well, I want you to know, President Zelensky, I want you to know that all the people in Ukraine to know as well. The American people have been with you every step of the way, and we will stay with you. We will stay with you for as long as it takes. So that's Biden
1: back in December 2022. Here he is again earlier this year in February 2023.
2: Remind us that freedom is priceless. It's worth fighting for, for as long as it takes. And that's how long we're gonna be with you, Mr. President, for as long as it takes.
1: We'll do it. Thank
3: you.
1: So that's Biden and Zelensky uh, shaking hands and Biden again pledging to support Ukraine for as long as it takes. Well, fast forward to this week in Washington where Zelensky came to town to beg Congress to prolong the proxy war, to approve more than $60 billion in new U.S. funding. And Biden's rhetoric has shifted.
2: The American people can be and should be incredibly proud of the part they played in supporting Ukraine's success. We'll continue to supply Ukraine with critical weapons and equipment as long as we can. So Katie,
1: hear that from as long as it takes to as long as we can.
0: What changed?
1: (laughs) What changed is, They're running out of people to sacrifice inside Ukraine, and also Republicans are now putting up all these demands that make it difficult for Biden to prolong his war. And that's why, from the point of view of people who care about Ukraine, it was silly and naive to trust that Biden would ever follow through on his pledge because Ukraine is being used by the U.S. to bleed Russia. So therefore, it was never about defending Ukraine for as long as it takes. It was about using Ukraine for as long as it was useful. And that's what we're seeing now. And because Biden is so desperate to prolong this war, he's willing to even throw undocumented immigrants under the bus. So check out this headline from CBS News. The White House signals it's open to hardline immigration policies to convince Republicans to back Ukraine aid. So because Biden's so desperate here to prolong this war, he is going to cave to Republicans. Or he's talking about caving to Republicans on making it even harder for people to. Claim asylum at the U.S. border. So it was naive for Ukrainians and people who care about Ukraine to trust Biden that he meant what he said when he said, We'll support Ukraine for as long as it takes. It was also foolish, I think, for progressives to support Biden's proxy war because now it means he's so desperate to prolong it that he will throw, he will, you know, sell out undocumented immigrants even more than he already has.
0: Right. He was supposed to be the guy who was not going to be bad to undocumented immigrants or Muslims. Right. Not building the wall and not no Muslim ban. But what he is doing is kind of building the wall, kind of uh talking about uh being more Trumpian than he already is with immigration and overseeing and funding and whitewashing and legitimizing a genocide of Palestinians. So. There's your humane president.
1: There we go. Exactly. Uh, For as long as it takes him to
3: continue selling everybody up.
0: Speaking of Trump, for my Republican stock, let's, let's take a look at an exciting announcement that he has.
3: This is your favorite president, Donald J. Trump, with some very exciting news. My last two Trump digital trading card collections sold out in just hours. And now I'm back with my latest series called the Mugshot Edition. I wonder where that came from, the Mugshot Edition. 47 all-new stunning cards, and here is the best part. I'm doing two important things for my Trump collectors. For the first time, we're creating a real physical Trump card. Purchase 47 digital cards and we'll mail you a beautiful trading card. It is an authentic piece of the suit I wore when I took that now famous mugshot, and it was a great suit, believe me, a really good suit. It's all cut up and you're gonna get a piece of it. I'll be autographing some of them. A true collector's item. This is something to give to your family, to your kids and grandchildren. With the purchase of 47 of the Trump digital trading cards, you will also be invited to join me for a gala dinner at my beautiful Mar-a-Lago. My home in Florida, you've perhaps heard of it. It's become a pretty famous place. We just had our first dinner for my collectors, and we had a lot of fun together. That was a great evening. That was a fantastic evening. Some people call these cards pop art or modern art. I wish I looked as good as I do on those cards, that I can tell you. They give me muscles where, believe me, I don't have them. I wanted to keep my Trump Digital trading cards at the same price, $99 each. So go to collecttrumpcards.com. It's really easy to buy.
0: I mean, honestly, I don't know if this is a Republican suck or if this is a Donald Trump is kind of a genius.
1: I think the former president is being modest. I think he does have muscles in all those places where he denies he has them. I, I, don't, I would not believe he doesn't
0: have muscles. Yes. That was the one thing that I found was almost newsworthy about this announcement was that that's not the Donald Trump that I know. He would never say that, that, that he doesn't have muscles in any part of his body. I was really surprised by this new humility.
1: This is a new man. This is a new, new humble man. Donald Trump, and he is showing his. He's ready for. He's ready for. He's ready to return the presidency with his newfound humility. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> amazing. I was wondering how much would we. What it's ninety nine dollars a card, and you have to buy forty eight. That's all you have to spend to have dinner with him. Wow, we could do it. Yeah, Aaron.
1: Yeah, does he serve Burger King and Wendy's like he did to those football players? Or oh, it...
0: right, good question.
1: Yeah. maybe that's why it's so relatively cheap for the privilege of dining with Trump.
0: Yeah. What do we got for Isn't That Weird?
1: For Isn't That Weird, we have a call for a boycott. And it has to do with Israel-Palestine. And Israel is the one committing a mass murder campaign right now in Gaza, destroying civilian life, wiping out entire families. But one prominent U.S. pundit does not want to boycott Israel. This pundit wants to boycott Taylor Swift uh, because Taylor Swift happened to attend a fundraiser for a charity that provides humanitarian relief to Gaza. And that pundit is Megan Kelly. And here she is calling for us all to shun Taylor Swift.
0: A group that NGO Monitor has described as highly political, presenting a highly biased view of the Israel-Palestine war, ignoring any Palestinian responsibility for hardship, and contributing to the demonization of Israel. That is the group Taylor Swift thought it might be fun to help raise money for, attend the fundraiser for, and she owes Israelis and Jewish Americans an apology. And I hope they boycott her events until she issues it. Because attending this thing was wrong. It was wrong. Do some Googling. See what they do in Gaza to gays. See about women's rights in Gaza, Taylor. Otherwise, do this when it comes to talking about those issues again. You clearly know nothing.
1: Wow. Well, I'm sure Taylor Swift's uh, career is over now that Megyn Kelly's calling for her to be boycotted. But what's funny about this clip, on top of the, you know, uh, just unhinged bigotry towards Palestinians and the notion of providing aid to them, is that Megyn Kelly's citing this group called NGO Monitor, as if there's some neutral objective source. They're a a right-wing group that basically exists to police organizations that support Palestinian rights. And they're headed by this guy named Gerald Steinberg, who's reportedly worked for the Israeli government. So not exactly a neutral source. And I say we boycott, I mean, not that I was ever watching Megyn Kelly anyway, but for going after Taylor Swift, for for attending a charity event, I say we should boycott Megyn Kelly. Yeah.
0: She was saying that she needs to apologize to Jewish Americans. I say Megyn Kelly needs to apologize to Jewish Americans. Here, here. Taylor, you're okay in our books. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So for, isn't that terrible? We have a story coming out of South Africa, a, a mermaid swimming in a tank, waving at people. Then she's coming to the surface doing the mermaid move and her mermaid tail gets stuck in the rocks just as she's coming to this surface for air. And so what she does is she strips herself of the mermaid tail and this is terrible for a couple reasons one is children all over the world will now see that mermaids are perhaps not real and are actual human beings wearing mermaid tails made out of spandex the good news though is that she was wearing shorts underneath it because she had to get out of that mermaid suit for her own physical safety and if she hadn't been wearing shorts underneath it, she would have exposed herself to a bunch of people. So it's not as terrible as it could have been, but it's still terrible.
1: The myth of the mermaid has been permanently shattered. People right. around the world up until this point believed in mermaids, thought they were real. And this, uh, this person, this selfish person trying to protect her own safety.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Has broken the hearts of mermaid fans everywhere. But uh, I am glad that she's okay because. Oh,
0: so am I. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even though it. it wouldn't be mermaid martyrdom, though, though appealing and compelling, not not worth it ultimately. Definitely not. Yeah. So if you're watching this, kids, we're sorry.
1: But it's that lady's fault for trying to save her own life. We're just the yeah. messenger.
0: We're just the messenger. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She shouldn't have worn. She shouldn't have worn that tail. And that's my terrible.
1: For this week's guest, we are joined by Craig McIver. He is a International human rights lawyer who recently served as the director of the New York office of the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights, but resigned his position over what he calls the UN's failure to stop a textbook case of
2: genocide in Gaza.
0: Thank you so much for joining Useful Idiots.
2: Great to be here. Nice to see both of you.
0: So, for people who don't know, can you just briefly set up what caused you to resign from the UN and um, issue that scathing letter that was then leaked and became a bit of a viral sensation?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, this conversation for me started uh, in the late winter, early spring <clears throat> with a series of gross violations of human rights that were happening actually on the West Bank, including the pogrom in Hawara village and all sorts of attacks that were taking place, uh, sort of an upsurge in persecution uh, at that period of time. And of course, I was speaking out quite publicly about that as a UN human rights official. I had done so with regard to human rights uh, situations in dozens of countries on all continents around the world. Uh, but in this case, I, you know, two things happened. One was that I saw what I called an overly trepidatious response on the part of the political side of the UN that was not calling out these atrocities, I, I thought, with the seriousness that they uh, that they were acquired on the one hand, and then secondly, and, and you know just as importantly was an attempt within the u n to silence me that I had never experienced in my thirty two years of uh, working in the human rights program at the uh, at the United Nations, and I had identified both of these things as being trends that were getting worse and worse as time went by that you know when it came in particular to Israeli violations of human rights that there was a kind of a fear-based response inside the political corridors of the UN that had been created intentionally over years of pressure from the United States government, from some other Western governments, from um, uh, from these really very abusive Israel lobby groups that have been set up around the UN with the explicit purpose of, of pressuring the UN and smearing UN human rights defenders and so on. And that those things had taken hold. They had bit deep enough that I had seen this trend of hesitancy when it came uh, in particular to... To Israeli violations, but for the first time in my entire career, I received basically a gag order that I was not to say anything about human rights in Palestine in particular. I wasn't told I couldn't say anything about other, about other situations, and I said at that time that's not something that I was comfortable with, and so I began this conversation uh, by informing the High Commissioner for Human Rights one that I was very worried about this hesitation to you know, speak truth to power, which I thought was the central mandate of the un human rights office uh, on the one hand and secondly about um giving in to pressure from powerful member states like the us and from these these lobby groups that had become so abusive and then of course the situation on the ground got much worse as time went by and so in october i penned the detailed letter that was ultimately leaked and went uh, and went viral setting out where i thought the un had gone wrong when it came to palestine what we needed to do to correct course, and some things that we needed to be doing immediately as well in our position, uh, positioning around, uh, around Palestine.
1: When you mention these uh, pro-Israel, anti-Palestinian lobby groups and their tactics, how do they enforce their narrative? How do they intimidate the UN and constrain it from acting?
2: Well, first of all, you know they describe themselves as non-governmental organizations, but that's kind of a stretch. They're what in the human rights community we always refer to as gongos uh which is to say government organized non-government uh, organizations um they they um uh, cooperate very closely with the permanent mission of Israel to the UN with the Israeli government and with the American uh, uh government in fact you know the, the the most vicious of all of them was an organization set up by a departing U.S. ambassador to the UN who had, before he was a U.S. ambassador, was an Israel lobbyist who was a very uh, dedicated adherent to Israeli policy. And he set up this organization specifically to pressure the, the United Nations. And, you know, that's one thing. and We all believe in free speech, and that's the position that you, you want to take. But its tactics were, are particularly disturbing, as it is with many of these groups. They have two main uh, tactics. One of them is perfidy. So it will pose as a human rights organization in order to get media attention and so on and so forth, when in fact its entire mission is dedicated to impunity, to preventing accountability for human rights violations, especially by uh, by Israel. And then the other is the smear. So it what it does is any independent UN human rights mechanism or UN human rights staff or, or, uh, or senior official that speaks out against Israeli human rights violations will then be subjected to not just individual smears being called biased anti-semitic all of these these kinds of things but campaigns of attacks i was subjected to one not my first one uh in in the winter by by one of these organizations and they're and they're, they're quite nasty right because they they activate networks of uh of of adherents and and others you know sort of small organizations and they all come at you in a, in a coordinated attack um you know publicly and online um they They demarche the UN, they get the Israeli ambassador to also démarch the UN. You get flack from US diplomats as well. And over time, when these things happen, I mean, both out of trepidation, as I said, but also uh, out of just a pragmatic recognition that the people in the UN, especially senior officials, are very busy and they'd rather not spend time having to deal with these uh, this pressure in addition to their fear from powerful states like like the US, it starts it starts to take hold. And what I said was during these conversations was that the, every time we allow them to do this, every time we silence ourselves, you're empowering these groups more and you're creating a paradigm where that's the status quo. That's the normal uh, state, state of affairs and that we needed to push back when, when uh, UN human rights uh, people were attacked. The UN needs to stand up for them. It doesn't do so. It leaves you to swing on your, on your own. Uh, in these cases. And, you know, it's not just because, you know, you know, hardworking human rights mechanism, you know, they've attacked, by the way, th- these groups have attacked everybody through the years, Nelson Mandela, Bishop Tutu, Jimmy Carter, um, anyone who dared to raise issues of human rights in, in Palestine will be attacked with the same kinds of smears and pressure and, uh, and and so on. Yeah, I think they've gotten away with it for so many years that it's become effective. And that's what I was pushing, uh, pushing back against.
0: What are these groups? Some of them,
2: you know, I hate to even give them any publicity, Mm -hmm. but, um, uh, you know, there's one that's based in Geneva. uh, That was the one I was referring to that was set up by this this former U.N. U.S. ambassador to to the United Nations, who then used his influence to get it formal accreditation at the U.N. So he flew to New York, he met with Kofi Annan, who was the Secretary General at the time, you know, got uh, uh, met with delegations to the intergovernmental body that gives accreditation, and they accredited this fake organization that was set up solely for the purpose of attacking human rights uh, defenders in order to achieve uh, Israeli uh, impunity, well funded, well organized network of, of other organizations that they collaborate with in the UK and in the United States in particular, but also uh, elsewhere in uh, in Europe, and uh, and there are several of them. As I say, it is a it, it is a network. I mean, the semi I had never heard of. You know, there was when I was still there, there was a British uh, NGO Israel lobby group uh, that I had never heard of and I had no contact with in my life. That then filed, and by the way, I learned this from the Guardian. I didn't even know this was happening. F- apparently, filed a complaint against me um, for being uh, for not being neutral. Vis-a-vis Israel and then accusing me of all these things like anti-Semitism and so on. And, you know, I had to remind people when they asked me about this, that it's not the job of a UN human rights official to be neutral. Right. It's to, you have to be impartial. Right. You can't sort of take sides of one state against another. But it is our job, as Camus said, to take the position of the victim. And, and if you're not, if you're working in the field of human rights, you're taking the position of the state that is perpetrating human rights violations, not the victim. That's the breach of your duties. And then also to point out that I've never had that complaint made against me when I spoke out against human rights violations in dozens of countries all around the world. The only time that happens is if you dare to criticize Israeli violations, and that's very dangerous.
0: And so what is it that the UN should be doing right now that they're not doing? And what are they doing that they shouldn't be doing?
2: Well, you know, whenever I talk about the UN, I'm always careful to distinguish between Right. Um, Different parts of the UN. My my critique was as the political part of the UN, which is to say the senior political leadership across the system, which is a very problematic structural problem. You know, you have um, you have this rule about independent international civil servants that can have no connections to government and so on, and they just have to implement the mandate. But all of the agencies and departments. Are headed by political appointees who are taken directly from foreign ministries. Right. So the head of the peacekeeping department, the head of the political affairs department, is always an American that comes directly from the State Department or the National Security Establishment. The head of the peacekeeping department is always a French person who is delivered by the French government. Uh, the head of the humanitarian affairs department is always a Brit who comes directly from, uh, you know, is handpicked by the British, by the British government, um, and and so on. And that part of the house, I and mean, I said the, the irony is that the higher up you get in the organization, the more trepidatious people become on taking positions of principle, which is quite remarkable because they are the safest ones, right? I mean, they're political appointees. They're really not accountable in the way that uh, other staff are professionals and so on. Um, so so that part of the house and you know, the secretary general's office and the heads of the departments uh, across it, they were the ones that I was criticizing together with intergovernmental bodies that had been so compromised. The Security Council is, is, you know, I have said, belongs in a Cold War museum. I mean, it is an entity uh, that empowers five permanent members who happen to be the victors of the Second World War with a veto that is usually used to prevent any action um, uh, to the benefit of normal human beings. And so the US using its veto repeatedly, I mean, in this case, using its veto to prevent ceasefire You know several times now and after each veto thousands of more palestinian civilians being massacred uh in gaza in an act as i have said of complicity under international law for which the u.s should be held uh should be held accountable so it's that part of the house that i'm talking about there is also in the u.n others there are these um um very principled and brave human rights uh, professionals and and humanitarian workers and development workers who are there because they hate poverty, they hate war, they hate uh, inequality and, and so on. And I've said they've been abandoned by the political leadership. And then you have 138 UNRWA staff, together with their families, murdered by Israel just in the last several weeks. Those people are heroes. They stayed there with their families doing what they could to help until they were cut down uh, in the largest killing of UN staff in the history of the organization. Uh, So those people I have no critique for only uh, only praise. And then on the on the good side, the light side of the house, you also have the independent human rights mechanisms like the special rapporteur on human rights in Palestine. Currently, Francesca Albanese, who's absolutely brilliant, like the Independent Commission of Inquiry. On human rights in, uh, in in Palestine, headed by Navi Pillay, South African jurist, who's been absolutely fantastic, and uh, and and two other uh, commission commission members. Those are those are the parts of the organization that are norm based, that reflect the principles of the organization, that have not been politically compromised in the way that the political leadership has, and some of these intergovernmental bodies have. And at the same time, I mean, I can't even say this without stop talking about this issue without mentioning the ICC. The ICC, which was going to be the great hope of criminal accountability for perpetrators of war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide, has turned out to be thoroughly politically captured by powerful Western states, including the US, which is not even a party to the ICC Rome statute, uh, and a prosecutor uh, in uh, Khan, who has shown himself to be absolutely, I mean, the man has to step down or be removed. He has, he has proven himself to be so biased, I mean, the, the imbalance, the rapidity with which he acted on Ukraine at the request of the West, and is dragging of his feet since his appointment on a case that's been pending for years in Palestine, and his refusal to take principled action now, I mean, not only is he discredited himself so thoroughly, the problem is he's discrediting the International Criminal Court, and if they don't take action to correct that, it deserves to be discredited. So far, it's proven itself just to be a judge of Africans, uh, but never having the courage or the principle to challenge perpetrators that come from the global north and the west. And, and that that is, you know, I mean, that's a huge problem when you've got things like genocide taking place uh, in Palestine. You can't rely on those institutions. I've pointed to, Katie, when you and I talked, this historical irony that 1948... Was the year that the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was adopted, the year that the Genocide Convention was adopted, but it was also the year of the Nakba in Palestine, starting in 47 and, and completing in, in 1948, and the year that apartheid was adopted in South Africa. And when you see the disconnect between the promise of those post-war institutions on the one hand, and what happened on the ground in other hands, uh, on the other hand. Uh, then you can see what's wrong with these international institutions and where the pressure needs to be uh, need to be brought to bear.
1: The conduct for Karim Khan, the prosecutor for the International Criminal Court, is, is really stunning. So he goes recently to visit Israel to, he says, investigate uh, potential war crimes by Hamas. Uh, he made a brief trip to the occupied West Bank, and apparently when he met with some Palestinian families uh, of prisoners held by Israel, Apparently, they say he spoke almost the entire time and only gave them a few minutes to speak. And this is after you say he let previous cases related to Palestine just sit on his desk without taking any action.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely shocking. And he did not and refused to go to Gaza, uh, which is outrageous. I mean, where you have, you know, virtually every genocide scholar in the world, international human rights uh, organizations, defenders, experts, all pointing to an unfolding genocide in Gaza. And the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court refusing to go there, or even to, you know, uh, take up the case, and looking to try to create some sort of, I don't know, political balance to defend himself against any pressure, or maybe, maybe he's like-minded. I don't know the man personally, but it, it seems to me he has uh, he has discredited himself so thoroughly. And I'll say it again: if he doesn't step down, or if he isn't removed, he is discrediting the court as well, and that will be damage that will take generations to undo, if ever. It may be that the International Criminal Court that so many civil society advocates lobbied so strongly for over a period of many, many years, it may fade off into obscurity. And frankly, if it cannot be a court based on the rule of law that holds all perpetrators accountable, it should fade off into obscurity because then it can do more harm than good. And I think that's exactly what's uh, what, what's happening now with the International Criminal Court. You know, there's been, you know, I'll give you another example I was involved in the setting up of the Genocide Prevention Office a long time ago. Kofi Annan was the was the Secretary General, and uh, Kofi Annan was feeling a, a sense of responsibility for the genocides that happened in Rwanda and in Srebrenica because when those things happened, he was the Under Secretary General in charge for peace in charge of peacekeeping, and the peacekeepers backed off and allowed those genocides to to take place apparently he felt very very uh bad about that and so he became secretary general years later and there was going to be a huge public address at the stockholm forum uh in in sweden uh, where he wanted to address this issue he wanted to apologize for the failings of the un with regard to those but his his um uh one of his uh his staff a guy named ed mortimer who was the sort of brilliant speechwriter and advisor called me and he said, the Secretary General doesn't want just to apologize. He wants to do that, but he also wants to announce that he's going to do something to make it less likely that this will happen again. So we proposed to him at that time that they establish an independent special rapporteur on the prevention of genocide that will be supported by the UN Human Rights Office and will be able to report directly to the Security Council when you have the threat of genocide emerging. Well, Kofi Annan went off to the Stockholm Forum and he announced that. Exactly in those words, it was going to be supported by the Human Rights Office reporting to the Security Council and so on. And after he announced it, the political parts of the House that are closely affiliated to the U.S. got involved and said, no way. Even though the secretary general said this, we can't have it this way. It can't be supported by the human rights people because genocide, they said, is a political thing. It's not a human rights thing. We were surprised to hear that. We thought that was a, a human rights issue. And it can't report to the Security Council because um because it needs to report to the secretary general and and he can report to security council if he feels that otherwise we can't draw and it can't be independent it has to be a part of the secretariat so so that we can control what it says and what it does so they took this great idea i thought in all humility and they replaced it with just a little orphan office in the secretariat that is under the direction of the secretary general's office and what is that office done under this which we criticized very strongly because we said that is a powerless meaningless uh, and soon will be entirely politicized if you do that. And that's exactly what's happened. That office has said nothing about the unfolding genocide in Palestine. Why does it exist?
1: And there was recently a letter signed by uh, dozens of UN staffers to the special advisor on the prevention of genocide, Alice Nedaritu, uh, for doing nothing about this, for not invoking the Genocide Convention, And that's additionally symbolic because we just passed the 75th anniversary of the Genocide Convention. And that anniversary happened to coincide with the U.S. vetoing at the UN Security Council a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza.
2: Exactly. And that was on the eve of the anniversary. So it's Genocide Prevention Day, it's the anniversary of the Genocide Convention. On the eve of that, we had that horrific, iconic image. Of the U.S. Uh, Deputy Permanent Representative raising his hand enthusiastically to block a ceasefire that would have impacted significantly the perpetration of genocide as it continues, and not for the and not for the first time. And that was also the same weekend of Human Rights Day, the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of, of Human Rights. And I've said that what's what's happening here: the first victims are the people of Palestine who are being massacred at an unprecedented level, but. What is also suffering here are international institutions, international law, international human rights, the very concept of genocide, which were all built up after the Second World War as a result of the horrors that were experienced uh, during the Second World War. And if you have a message coming from the United States and the United Kingdom and their Western allies that says these rules do not apply to us or to our Western friends, or in shorthand, they do not apply to white people. Uh, but they do apply to the rest of the world. That is maybe the last nail in the coffin of these international laws and international institutions built up since, because who is going to claim in the future that these rules are binding? Uh, you know, the U.S. loves to talk about the rules based international order, which is a phrase that it made up in order to avoid saying international law. Because frankly, the United States has never respected international law, this framework I'm talking about since the Second World War. And has been, you know, you hear a lot of rhetoric in this country about the U.S. leadership on human rights in the world. And it's, it's something that's snickered at by people who actually work internationally on human rights because the U.S. is an outlier when it comes to the international human rights uh, infrastructure. It has one of the worst ratification records of human rights treaties. It is the only state on the planet 193 countries. The US is the only state on the planet that has not ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child, the main international treaty to protect the human rights of children. It has a weak ratification record across the board. It opposes most of the pillars of the international human rights movement. It actively opposes economic and social rights as rights. It actively opposes the prohibition, uh, the, the, the movement to uh, eliminate capital punishment. It opposes the international racism, anti racism agenda. Um, it opposes the ICC. I mean, it has opposed and has even passed legislation to say that if any of our people or our allies are are brought to, uh, uh, for war crimes uh, before the ICC, that they will use military force to remove them from the Hague in the Netherlands, uh, in what was called the Hague uh, Invasion Act. You know, pretty much across the board, you have a very, very bad, and it is it is a state that is invested the most in preventing any protection for the human rights of the Palestinians, in spite of. Decades and decades of efforts to try to mobilize some protection for their human rights in the in the occupied territory. So if that's leadership, uh, we wish they'd follow for a while uh, and maybe have a better record.
0: You've been very outspoken about this being a case of genocide. Um, And you are now joined by dozens more, uh, including genocide specialists who signed a letter saying it's an unfolding genocide. But uh, so I want to ask you if you could make the case for why this is a genocide. And also, you've said that beyond that, legally speaking, again, in terms of international law, which the U.S. doesn't engage in or respect, the U.S. is, legally speaking, um, complicit in this. So can you talk about, from your area of expertise, why this is a genocide and why the U.S. is, is uh, complicit in it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I uh, said from the very beginning that this is the clearest case of genocide I've seen in my career. Uh, as it was unfolding, because you know we, and, and I always make the point, we know that genocide is very politicized. It's claimed in cases where it doesn't exist, and it's denied in cases where it clearly, uh, clearly does. But in this case, just following the language of the Genocide Convention, which is what lawyers do uh, uh, to have a non-politicized assessment, every single category set out in the Genocide Convention has been ticked in the current case. Genocide in international law requires certain specific acts, and a very specific intent as well. And when you have those two elements, that is uh, uh, genocide. So the acts are things like um, killings, causing serious harm to a population, uh, deliberately inflicting conditions of life calculated to bring out their destruction in in whole or in part, um, uh, and then the intent to destroy in whole or in part a particular ethnic, racial, religious group um, as, uh, as such well in this case you've got all of that just obvious right you've got a particular group that is that that, that this is being perpetrated only against palestinians uh, as such right um large scale killings that are required you know we've got at least 18000 civilians uh, mostly civilians exterminated in a matter of a few weeks 8000 children 5000 women 5, 5000 men murdered in a very short amount of time you know hundreds of whole Multi-generational families that have been exterminated, you know, their whole bloodline erased from the public register, more than 50,000 who have been injured, many thousands more still under the rubble, dying slow, excruciating deaths uh, because you you can't get to them, and many more now dying of disease, and now we've actually got starvation happening in the Gaza Strip on the Mediterranean, right? so this wholesale slaughter of an imprisoned whole neighborhoods raised to the ground massive ordnance dropped on the most densely populated civilian areas and then attacking homes refugee camps uh hospitals clinics ambulances schools u.n facilities many many u.n facilities humanitarian facilities the whole civilian infrastructure right that's very clear then you've got this thing in the convention that talks about serious harm physical and mental well, Thousands have been wounded, maimed, denied adequate medical care, having amputations without anesthetic, mm-hmm. uh, uh, denied food, intentionally divide, denied food and water and medicine and shelter, constant bombing, sniper attacks, You know, people widowed, orphaned, exposed to disease, whole families wiped out. I think we can say that that part of the genocide convention has been met. So here's one of the ones that's really interesting is this, this strange formulation that talks about deliberately inflicting on a group conditions of life calculated to bring out its physical destruction in whole or in part i mean that's a kind of a systematic thing right and if you look at gaza and this is this is one of the things that people say gosh this is absolutely genocide israel has interned has imprisoned 2.3 million civilians in gaza remember most of them poor because of imposed poverty from the outside most of them food insecure, most of them children, most of them refugees already, because they, they had been ethnically purged from inside of what is uh, is now um, Israel. Uh, it's imposed a siege on the Gaza Strip since at least 2005, deliberately restricting the flow of food, water, sanitation, medicine, free movement, uh, construction material, all elements of a decent life, and then periodically launching military attacks against them, like shooting fish in a barrel, right? And since October, Israel has made that siege total. So cutting off all food, fuel, water, uh, electricity, all the essentials that are necessary uh, for survival. You had now uh, more than two million women, children, and men forcibly displaced. Uh, And the Israeli perpetrators have not been shy for, for, for years Uh, about the nature of their unlawful collective punishment of the civilian population in Gaza. Uh, You know, when they bar uh, food from coming in, they use metaphors like putting the population on a diet. This is genocidal language, mowing the lawn when they launch military attacks against them and so on. They've destroyed, as I said, homes and schools and hospitals and churches and mosques and courthouses and food production and refugee camps, UN facilities. So everything that's necessary to survive uh, as a people in Gaza and so, I mean, if you look at this whole interning, this imprisoning uh, in the Gaza ghetto, the Gaza prison, for so many years with the closure and the attacks on them, it is the clearest case of Article 2C of the Gen- Genocide Convention imposing these conditions of life that we've ever seen. But even more striking than that uh, is the issue of intent. Now, because intent is really hard to, to prove, uh, it's sometimes hard to prove, The International Court of Justice has said you can infer intent from conduct, right? And I mean, in this case, 75 years of ethnic purges, they have continued since, you know, uh, the beginning in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the West Bank, now in Gaza. That already represents very compelling evidence that it is the intent of Israel to carry out yet another ethnic purge in Gaza. But you don't even need to do that because the climate of impunity that Israel has enjoyed because of the United States and the UK and some other uh, diplomatic, uh, European diplomatic and military support and so on, that has led to this unprecedented situation in modern history, where they're so sure that they won't be held accountable, that they have been declaring their genocidal intent openly, publicly and on the record since the assault on Gaza started. That is rarely true in cases of, of genocide. I, I told you before, uh, Katie, that you know normally You have to send in your investigators, dig through dusty government archives, find communications between government officials to try to get proof of intent. They're doing that work for us by declaring it publicly, right? And here we're talking about the Israeli president, the prime minister, cabinet ministers, military officials, you know, these think tanks working with the government, openly dehumanizing Palestinians in Gaza as uh, animals and subhuman and Nazis and cancer and ants and vermin you know this is a very familiar language yeah. to genocide uh, people working on genocide they have openly declared an intent uh, of course when they're speaking in english to the west they're talking about mm. we're going to war with hamas blah, blah but at home and in hebrew they declare their intent to wipe out all of gaza uh, to not distinguish between civilians and combatants to raise gaza to the ground to reduce it to rubble uh, and explicitly to carry out another Nakba, the genocidal ethnic cleansing of Palestinians that happened in 1947 and 1948, and then, as we've all heard, you know, Netanyahu himself invoking this biblical verse of Amalek, commanding uh, that the entire population be wiped out, none be spared, uh, men, women, children, suckling babies, and livestock. Right. In other words, genocide so they have made the case for genocidal intent itself i I heard somebody has been sort of doing a consolidated uh index of all of these statements of genocidal intent and it's like over 100 now of of these things lastly and i think this is important is the issue of capacity because a lot of people may say horrible things but they Mm -hmm. can't really carry out a genocide because they don't have the capacity israel has a capacity for genocide that has not existed in the modern world. It has constructed this powerful apparatus of repression that is firmly entrenched in all of Israel and all of Palestine now for decades. You know, it includes military occupation and assault forces, abusive police contingents, ruthless intelligence agencies, physical things like walls and fences and barbed wire, but also like advanced monitoring and surveillance technologies, drones, autonomous weapons. Um, violent armed settlers that they arm and back up uh, the whole system of repressive uh, apartheid laws, uh, apartheid you know reigning across the land, uh, as is, uh, has been discussed and shown. And so, as a result of this, Palestinians are entirely subjugated, entirely vulnerable and exposed, forcibly contained and interned, uh, and subject to regular attacks, both by Israeli military forces and by violent Israeli settlers. So, they absolutely have the means to carry out the genocide, and it has been actively deploying all of those means in, uh, in, in recent weeks. Uh, I mean, as, as people who, who do criminal work would say they have the means, the motive, the opportunity, and the stated intention to carry out this uh, crime. There's a whole analysis on the 10 steps of genocide as well that genocide analysts use. All of those have been ticked uh including us uh, separating and identifying and dehumanizing all, all those sorts of things so you have the most clear and compelling prima facie uh, case of both acts of genocide and genocidal intent that we've ever seen and if legal accountability is not pursued in this case that's the end of genocide uh, as a protective instrument you know the genocide convention the crime of genocide the inclusion of genocide in the rome Statute. That will all be gone because the whole world will say, "Here is a very, very clear case in which the West has said it will not be enforced." And 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 I just mentioned as well, the Genocide Convention doesn't just outlaw acts uh, of uh, of genocide, but it also imposes an obligation of prevention and an obligation to act to stop it on uh, on all states for this universal crime. And as we started to say, and you asked the question about complicity. It has a specific crime called complicity under its Article Three, so it's not just genocide, but also things like incitement to genocide and complicity in genocide. And in this case, you know, not only has the U.S. failed in its obligations of prevention, uh, but it's also actively providing economic, military, intelligence, diplomatic support, and the veto while this is unfolding in in real times. And we've seen that official state institutions of the U.S. have actually dedicated themselves to disseminating Israeli propaganda for war, including false justifications for war crimes and crimes against humanity that have been echoed from the podiums uh, in in Washington, Uh, and using its diplomatic power to pressure international institutions to back off on Israeli atrocities. As they're happening, I think here too, legal accountability has to, has to be pursued. You know, we've seen in recent weeks some efforts in Washington to go on these um, fig leaf harvesting missions, right? Uh, so, what you, you know, publicly you say, oh, we asked the Israelis to continue to respect international law, and we've negotiated some uh, a few trucks to get into Gaza, and so and This is largely meaningless in, in the current concept. But what they don't seem to understand is that this will in no way relieve them from their accountability under international law. Because while they have been you know, trying to harvest these, these fig leaves, they have continued to arm and finance and protect these crimes as they're being committed, in, into up to and including the vetoing of all these Security Council resolutions. So it's a horrific moment and the first victims are the Palestinians, but also international human rights may well be collateral damage in this case.
1: Yeah, when it comes to repeating uh, Israeli propaganda, Joe Biden, as we're recording this, he just again claimed that he saw videos of beheaded babies, right? which is a claim that he previously had to withdraw because it's not true. And yet somehow he's still back to repeating that lie. But when it comes to the US role, You also now have the U.S. admitting that they're not conducting real-time assessments to whether Israel is following international law. And that's a requirement under U.S. law that if you're going to give weapons to somebody, they have to be not committing war crimes. And this just came out in the Washington Post that the U.S. is not conducting real-time assessments of whether Israel is following the law. So um, what is your response to that? And, And does that fall into the complicity that you are are warning us about that that the u.s could
3: be uh, liable for and to hear the rest of the interview please go to usefulidiotspodcast.com
0: what a great interview with craig mchyber such a smart guy
1: really smart has so much to say spent so much time on the inside and can now speak as a free person about the reality of the u.n and how it's completely failed to stand up to the mass murder campaign by Israel in Gaza. I'm very appreciative of everything he's saying now. And that was a wonderful interview.
0: Yeah, it really was such a good person too. make sure you join or are already a member of useful idiots podcast.com. So you can watch that full interview with Craig, where we get into a really interesting discussion about lots of things, including the allegations of mass rape being made by Israel against Hamas.
1: That's usefulidiotspodcast.com. And thanks to those who are already members. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For extended episodes, bonus content, and our weekly Thursday Throwdown episode, please subscribe at usefulidiotspodcast.com. Support the show for free by subscribing on YouTube, Rumble, and wherever you get your podcasts. If you like the podcast, don't forget to rate and review. You can also follow us on Twitter at Useful Idiot Pod. Thanks for supporting independent media. We'll see you next time.